Well, good morning. Isn't it just great to be able to declare that we're the children of God? It doesn't take long to get away from this place and mixing with other people and they're kind of ripping into you that you're all other kinds of things. And it's great just to be able to declare together that we are the children of God. As dinner parties went, this was an incredibly happening party. The invited guests had all arrived to enjoy the sumptuous meal that was laid out for them. And the conversations, or perhaps even the debate about religious issues, was creating a lot of interest. And the host, Simon, an important leader of the Jewish religion in the town, surveys the scene with more than a touch of pride. He's thinking to himself, what an exclusive. Jesus, the religious teacher and rabbi with a rapidly growing reputation, is my dinner guest today. My Jewish mates who are here are going to be really impressed. And according to tradition, if a rabbi or a notable person came, they would be greeted with a kiss and with much fanfare. And then the invited guests would recline at a low table, which was placed in the centre of the meal room. Great wooden dishes of food would be there on that table. And the guests would lean on their left elbow, sometimes they were on couches, with their feet turned away from the table. And the servants would come along and wash their dirty dust-covered feet. And behind the servants, members of the community would begin to gather to observe that feast and to listen in on the conversation that was going on. They would not have been thought obtrusive if they just walked in off the street into that room because the gates and the doors of the house were wide open for them to do so. And it so happened that a woman entered Simon's home at the same time as Jesus. And in silence, she joined the gathering crowd, the crowd of the uninvited. She was a woman of the street. She was a whore who plied her trade in that very city. And her presence was a scandal to Simon and to many of his respected guests. She'd come hoping to catch a moment with Jesus she had heard him on the street days before. She had watched him tell his stories. She would listened to them. She watched him as he blessed the poor and the helpless and he, as he had reinve reinvested people with meaning and purpose. And she felt herself rising with a new sense of dignity and self-respect as she heard him teach about God's love and forgiveness. Up until that time, every rabbi she'd ever encountered treated her with contempt. She'd never dared to look into the face of a Pharisee lest she incur the shame of his glare. Yet this rabbi, this one called Jesus, had once stared right at her across the crowd as she listened to him. And his gaze radiated a sense of acceptance that had affected her deeply and somehow changed her inwardly. So as she came into this dinner party, she hoped for a moment to meet him face to face. 
The alabaster jar of anointing perfume was hanging around her neck, indicating her readiness to thank Jesus for what he'd done in her life. And so we have Jesus and we have this sinful woman arriving at Simon's house together, yet not together. She hung back and watched anxiously for a chance to meet with him. And as she did, she observed the public spectacle of Simon's lack of hospitality toward Jesus. First, there was no kiss of greeting. Then he refused to wash Jesus' feet. And there was no anointing with oil, marks of hospitality and respect. She grew agitated at this. This, after all, was the man who transformed her by reinvesting her with dignity and self-respect. How could Simon treat Jesus so poorly? Overwhelmed by the cocktail of devotion and gratitude, she felt herself moving forward, breaking from the safety of the gathering. This was not her intent, but she had a newfound dignity. She found herself kneeling at the feet of Jesus. She was kind of confused at how she got there. She was embarrassed. She was being glared at by a group of men who viewed her with nothing but contempt and hostility. And then a torrent of tears just began falling out of her eyes over the feet of Jesus, making a mess as they went over his dirty, dusty, unclean feet. They were tears of release and joy. And this woman realized the dreadful mess that she was making at the feet of Jesus. So with nothing to dry his feet with, she reached up and undid her loosely bound hair. And it fell in dark tresses and spilled across the feet of Jesus. As Simon jumped to his feet, and as she heard the gasp of the onlookers, she realized she'd just done the unthinkable. They all thought she was seducing Rabbi Jesus, this sinful woman. The loosing of her hair was an intimate action that happened between husband and wife or was seen by whores such as her. Having dried Jesus' feet with her hair, she just kissed and kissed and kissed them. And then she reached for the jar of perfume that was nestled between her breasts and she anointed, she poured that whole jar of ointment over Jesus' feet. All of this was done deliberately, without a word. Simon was outraged. In a perverse kind of arrogance, he scoffed to himself, just to himself, if this man Jesus really was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is seducing him. She's a whore. As if what the woman did was not offensive and scandalous enough to Simon's pharisaical sensibilities, yet worse was the failure of Jesus to ward off her affections. But this is where the crux of the story lies the very point Jesus will go on to make. You see, Jesus proved that he was a prophet by the very fact that he did see who this woman was. He sensed her repentance. He felt her relief. He knew her joy at being forgiven. 
It's Simon who saw nothing but an erotic act. When Jesus looked at the woman's unbound hair, he saw devotion, gratitude, repentance. When Simon saw the same thing, he perceived lust. Being the prophet he was, Jesus also discerned the turmoil of heart and mind that Simon was experiencing. Remember, nothing's been said. So Jesus spoke to Simon. Simon, I've got something to say to you. Tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him $125,000 and the other about $12,000. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled, he tore up the debts of both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Which one do you think, Simon? The one, I suppose, who had the debt of 125,000 cancelled. Simon had been caught. And I suspect there was more silence as Jesus let the simplicity of that parable sink in. And Jesus looked down at the woman at his feet and spoke to Simon who was across the way. So he's looking at this woman. Do you see this woman, Simon? And much to his own embarrassment, his eyes, like everyone else's, had not been able to leave this unwanted intruder. Of course I see her, Jesus. She's just ruined my dinner party and my reputation with my religious mates. Simon, I entered your house as a guest. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume over my feet. Now, that was incredibly insolent behavior from Jesus. It was the height of rudeness for a guest to point out the deficiencies of the host. It was just unthinkable that Jesus dared to criticize the hospitality of Simon the Pharisee. But Jesus continues, I tell you, the great love she has just shown in that act proves, proves that her many sins have been forgiven. And then this, but whoever has been forgiven little shows only a little love. In this way, Jesus identifies the woman with the debtor who owed a large debt. And the clear inference is that Simon is like the man who owned, owed the smaller debt. They were both debtors, though. And just like the two men in the, in the little parable Jesus told, they were equally unable to repay their debt. Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman were both unable to repay the debt they owed to God. And Jesus' most cutting suggestion was that Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman were leveled by that inability. 
I wonder if Simon was going then, why don't I feel the same devotion as that sinful woman? I didn't even treat him with the normal hospitality and look what she's done. I wonder. These Pharisees, and Simon in particular here, seem to be so conceited that he almost imagined himself as almost perfect. And because of their holiness, these Pharisees, their scrupulous law-keeping and their avoiding contact with defiling sinners like this whore of a woman at the feet of Jesus, the Pharisees, Pharisees thought they had an inside run towards God, you know, the inside barrier on the racetrack. They thought they had his ear and his favour. But this story says not so. Some may have lived more holy lives than others, but we're all in debt to God's grace and forgiveness. And the more forgiven one feels, the more gratitude one wants to express. Love little, forgiven little. Jesus then confirmed to the woman that her sins had been forgiven and he sent her off in peace, thus further scandalizing Simon and his guests. What's all this about? Costly, loving acts of devotion toward God are most appropriately made in response to God's grace, not to earn God's grace. Simon's tragic and deluded belief was that his life of ceremonial cleansings, his study of the first five books of the Bible, his offerings and sacrifices, his whole religious fervor would impress God enough to earn favor and grace. Now hear me clearly, Jesus was not condemning a great holy lifestyle, but it had to come out of an encounter with the living God and not to create that encounter. Simon wore his religious lifestyle as a badge of office, a mark of superior spirituality. And for that sin, he was nailed by Jesus. The great unrepentant sinner whose presence defiles at that meal is actually Simon. It's not the woman. Jesus is really hard on Simon because he loves him. He basically says to him that he has no real awareness of the nature of evil in his own heart. He sees himself with few spiritual debts and thus in need of little forgiving grace. Consequently, he shows little, if any, love. Not even the common courtesies of hospitality of the day. I think Jesus was indicating to Simon that he had deep, deep levels of pride and hard-heartedness, a judgmental spirit, an over-familiarity with God's story that bred contempt and complacency. Simon thought he'd made the grade okay and so that he had little need of God's gracious forgiveness. 
I was 22 years of age, that's just a little while ago, when I was sitting just like you are this morning and the pastor of the church that I belonged to at the time was preaching through the letter to the church at Ephesus. And you need to understand, uh, I don't know how many years we were uh, looking at that book. Um, incredible Bible teacher. I owe a lot to him for where I am today. And in this particular occasion, in probably what was again a usual 45 minute, an hour long teaching, he started out somewhere with Ephesians 2.1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And something happened to me right now. I am not dead. Now remember, Paul was talking to a mob like us. Believers, you were once dead. And I, I sat there and I, I'm not, I actually literally pinched myself and told myself I was alive. Something had begun to happen in me. And I began to turn that phrase over and over and I tuned out from my pastor. I have no idea how long I was tuned out as I wrestled with this. My life has never been that bad that I've been dead in trespass and sin I went. And if I could put myself in this story, I was a lot like Simon in this story we've just read. I was a pastor's kid. Worship every Sunday. Read my Bible regularly. Went to Sunday school. Went to youth group. Um, you know, all those things that I did and I was lining all those up in my mind, that's not deadness, that's not deadness. I was actually taking pride in my performance, in my good moral living, in my religious performance, in my worship, etc., etc. And then came a moment when I realised how horrendous that looked to God. He revealed it to me. That's not going to buy you a ticket. And then I realized there was nothing I could do about it. As I said, I don't know how long that went on for as I wrestled with this phrase, once you were dead in your trespass and sin. But I tuned in and this is the first thing I heard. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. It was an incredible watershed moment for me. An amazing, heartwarming experience as I sat in a service just like us this morning as God washed his grace over me, as I'd realised how horrendous my self-performance was to him. It was a moment that changed me forever and when that pastor reminded me about seven or eight years later of that event he never said anything to me it was the key that unlocked the call of God into ministry he said you remember that day I said we've never talked about it he said I saw what happened he said it's for a day like this what happened at the home of Simon stands to this day as a powerful and unmistakable call for repentance and devotion on the part of both the religious those who think they've got the inside running and those who know they haven't 
It demands a change in the lifestyles of both those who've lived in immorality and carelessness and of those who've lived sanctimonious, self-righteous lives. Grace and forgiveness are not earned. They are undeserved, therefore unattainable. We can only know the joy of forgiveness by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. That kind of true repentance is ever only based on the love and acceptance that God brings. So often there's something within us that refuses to believe that forgiveness can be so simple. A response, a simple response to the love and mercy of God. Where do you stand? Where do I stand this morning? With the reckless emotional abandon which knows the immensity of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus like the sinful woman or the formal right living of Simon. We know the answer we'd like to give. But how does the evidence stack up? Does your devotion to Jesus look more like that of Simon, the Pharisee, or that of the sinful woman? Does my, does your living for Jesus magnify the glorious forgiving love and grace of God in Jesus Christ? I want you to sit with that scene for a moment. Just sit with it. If it helps you to sit with that scene, let's just open up these elements which tell us about the wonder and magnificence of God's grace to us that can't be earned, that is freely given. Just sit with this for a moment. Does your devotion to Jesus look more like that of Simon the Pharisee or that of the sinful woman? Before we share communion together, I want us to view and listen to a song by Sylvie Palladino. Sings at carols by candlelight. Uh, It's a song called Your Grace Still Amazes Me. Let it just wash over you as you prepare to share in these elements.